As I mentioned earlier, we're starting a new series today called The Solas. And if you got our email, if you're on our email list, you have read that the reason we chose this is because this is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation, going back to 1517. And the Protestant Reformation produced lots of diversity in traditions, but one common thing that it produced was what is now called the five solas. So these are theological principles that were produced and really, you could say, revived during the time of the Protestant Reformation. And so we're going to take one of those principles every week, and we're not just going to talk about how to rightly profess them, but every week we're going to talk about how to rightly practice them. Because honestly, who cares if it doesn't matter to our life, right? And so my hope is that this won't come across as a class on doctrine, uh, but rather it will lead us to doxology. That is, from doctrine, through doctrine, to worship in all of life. That really is my prayer. And uh, I think the temptation would be for me or for anybody uh, when teaching it to, to let it stick at professing, right? Just tell me what it means instead of going all the way through to practice. So I want you all <clears throat> to pray for me uh, as we go through this series that it, I really do take us all the way through, all the way through to practice. And if you feel as though that's not happening, honestly, let me know. Because I deeply want this to be helpful. And when I say this, I don't mean the Word of God. Clearly, the Word of God is helpful. Uh, The way I teach it, I want it to be helpful. So with that, 500 years. So that's 1517. What happened in 1517? Martin Luther nailed his famous, now anyway, famous, 95 theses to the, the castle door at Wittenberg, the, the, the university where he, he taught. He was a professor. And honestly, Martin Luther didn't think it would be a big deal. He had already published a whole list of theses that no one ever talked about. And so this list of theses he thought would be debated some for clarification in the academy, and that's it. And of course, he was wrong. 1517, these 95 theses set a fire, a small spark that is still burning today, as some have said. Now, four years later in 1521 is finally when he became a heretic. You got to remember, to be a heretic in this day was also to be a criminal because there was no separation between church and state in any way. That was, that's a new thing. And so Martin Luther, four years later at the Diet of Worms or a meeting at a place called, we would say Worms, but Worms, W-O-R-M-S, German. Edward V, who was the prince and a representative of the Roman Catholic Church, are there. And Martin Luther is, picture a court scene, and, and there's a throne with a prince actually on the throne, okay? And there's a table of pamphlets and writings of Luther's. And they, everyone's there to know what's going to happen. Martin Luther is going to recant his writings. Finally, when he realizes the gravity of what he's done in committing heresy, he's going to recant and we're going to be merciful to him and we're going to let him live. That's sort of the mentality of the, the church, the Roman Catholic church. So they're there and they ask him, actually it was more than ask, I think it was, you will recant, no? And Martin Luther uh, hemmed and hawed and they gave him a day to think about it. So he, he goes to his room and he labors all night in prayer, comes back the next day, 
And this is what he says. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. From that moment on, Martin Luther was a heretic. And only by the providence of God and his relationships and political intrigue did he survive. He should have been killed on his way back. And he was saved because of political interests. Praise God for that. And from there on, Martin Luther went about a whole ministry founded on this principle that only the word of God can bind our conscience. And in the 20th century, scholars look back and have called that by this Latin phrase, sola scriptura. Now that's good news to us, and I want to show us why that's good news. But although most of us won't ever stand before a court and be asked to recant our table of writings, right? Unless it's like our Facebook posts. Uh, Do you really believe all these? No, I don't. I'm so sorry. That's what we would say. But we'd have these tables. Many of us won't experience that. But what we will experience is times when we will question the sufficiency of our highest authority. We'll be in situations where we'll think to ourselves, do I really have to say no to this? Like maybe um, you're, you're doing your taxes. Not like this has ever happened to me. You're doing your taxes uh, and TurboTax says that I or you or someone owes $5,000. And then you can click this box and make that money go away. It's an option. You click the box, it makes it go away. And apparently people can click the box because the box is there to click. And you might think, oh, should I click the box? Should I not click the box? No one might ever know. And can I lean into the, the vagueness of the IRS? Or maybe it's something not nearly as filled with gravity, like jail time. Your boss may ask you to stay longer when you told your spouse that you'd be home because it's your child's birthday. I mean, these are everyday moments where we feel a conflict with our experience. Who will I answer to? Who ultimately does my word uh, go to? So we understand that whatever your highest authority is will direct your life in the small things and the big things. And in our passage today, we see that true freedom and flourishing comes from the proper authority, not the lack of an authority. Right? Nobody gets to choose a lack of authority. The question is, do you have the proper authority? And so, if sola scriptura is about the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, which it is, then it makes sense that we rightly understand it. So first, how do we rightly profess Scripture alone, or sola scriptura? Now, the context of the Reformation 
was who has the ultimate authority. There, there was and still is no debate between Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic churches that the Bible is the word of God, that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. That was not a question then. It's not a question now. The question actually is, is the Bible alone the highest authority or is tradition on the same level as the Bible? That really is and was the question that Martin Luther was being asked to recant was he was saying the Bible alone is our authority because councils and popes can be wrong. They are fallible. So that's where the debate was, and that's where the debate still is. So the question is final or ultimate authority, and that's where the phrase sola scriptura comes from. Sola means final or last authority. Now, there are two ways we misunderstand this that we have to understand rightly to rightly profess. And the first thing is this is sola, not solo. Sometimes we think it's solo scripture, that the Bible is our only authority. Well, that's not true. And the Bible teaches us there are other authorities like pastors and parents and government, right? There are other authorities in our lives, right? For me to be a pastor here, I had to have a good faith subscription to the Westminster standards, right? Not to every word because it can be fallible and have error, but I had to say, I believe that this is, in general, the system, what the Bible teaches systematically, okay? So there are authorities that aren't bad, right? They exist. So it's not solo scriptura, it's sola scriptura. What that means is that only the Bible can ultimately bind our consciences, Okay, so while we gain all types of wisdom from the natural sciences, for example, because after all, we, God reveals himself, in creation, we need the scriptures ultimately to help us understand who God is. John Calvin uses this phrase, one of the reformers, that the scriptures in that sense serve like a pair of glasses that we wear. And when we look through the scriptures, we can rightly interpret the rest of the world. It brings the rest of the world into clarity, whether it's physics or art or music, whatever it is, we learn lots of things, but only the scriptures can help us interpret that rightly. And only the scriptures can bind our conscience. So no bloggers, no parenting experts, no theologians, no cultural commentators, no documentaries of their own power can bind your conscience. Isn't that good news? Now we can learn from their reasoning. We can learn from evidence and sound judgment. We can be even convinced at some level by its truth. But ultimately, all things must be tested by scripture. That's what sola scriptura means. It's not solo. It's also what came to be called, not, it's sola, not nuda, right? So it is the word nude, just in Latin. So I don't know if that's more helpful or less helpful to say it from up front. But it means bare, right? To be bare. Scripture alone, meaning nothing else can be a resource to us theologically except scripture. You see, Martin Luther was being pressed from both sides. So were the reformers. On the one side, the Pope was saying, only I have equal authority with the Bible. No, the reformer said, scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And then there were these radical reformers, so-called, that took sola scriptura and made it nuda scriptura, meaning that no tradition has any place in the church, only the Bible itself. Then what happened is in an age like ours, right, in rampant individualism, what so law scripture became is me and my Bible and nobody else can tell me anything else. It's just me and my Bible, right? Some people might say me and Jesus, just me and my Bible. And so Calvin, for example, 
knew that this wasn't true, and so did Luther, because right away, they started writing catechisms for their church, right? They started writing confessions for their church. Calvin had this war cry, knowing that it was important for the consistency of the early church fathers all the way through to the reformers. The reformers didn't want to create some new faith. And so Calvin said, the ancient church is on our side, brothers. It mattered. He wanted to go back to the church fathers. I don't know about you, but I don't want a faith that's 50 years old. I don't even want a faith that's 500 years old. I want a faith that's millennia old. And you see then, there's a difference then between tradition and traditionalism. Traditionalism is an ideology that puts tradition on equal par with scripture. Basically, traditionalism says if it's older, it's better. But today, we automatically think if it's newer, it's better. And both are wrong. Okay, so tradition is a rich treasure trove to us. Absolutely. I mean, we have so many rich brothers and sisters throughout the church to go back to and lean on. Teachers given in ages past and because of the written word in God's glory, we actually can learn from brothers and sisters from years past. People like St. Bonaventure, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, all of these people, and of course, the reformers after them. So, you see, only Scripture is our highest authority. And yet, God has given us so many gifts, so many gifts to dip back into. And you know what's beautiful about those gifts? Is that when we read them and all the things that were important to them then, it can cut through our blind spots of consumerism and individualism. When we come to the Bible, we just have questions that saints of old didn't even ask. And sometimes we, we need new theologians every generation to help us answer those questions. But at the same time, even our teachers and pastors and theologians need the old traditions, the breath of ages past to breathe in to clear our minds, to help us ask the types of questions we can better ask, to help us to see through the blind spots of consumerism, as I said, and individualism. So we need this. So sola scriptura is not solo, right? It's not no other authority. It's not you and Jesus only, you and the Bible. But we need community to interpret the scriptures, right? We need community. Creeds, confessions, they actually have more of an authority above my teaching alone because they represent a consensus of the church broadly, not just in geography, but over time. Over time, the church has continued to ask these questions of the creeds and confessions that we've inherited and compare them to the scriptures over decades and millennia. And guess what? They still hold. So we need to rethink the idea that individuals by themselves can interpret the Bible with some type of authority on their own. We have the privilege and the responsibility of reading the Bible for ourselves, but we need it to be in community where the church, capital C, is to nurture individuals so that they'll become right readers of the scripture. You know what that does? It's like this whole movement of tidying up. You know this movement, right? Speaking of documentaries. So there's this whole idea of tidying up that it'll make our lives cleaner and make our lives uh, happier, help us focus more. Good stuff. But sola scriptura is a theological tidying principle. It clears our theological houses of funky furniture that just sort of got left over from the other generation. And all of a sudden you look at like, well, that doesn't fit anymore. 
but it also helps clear cultural cobwebs that were snuck in the church's teaching. We need saints and teachers from ages past, creeds and confessions from ancient past. And the reformers in teaching sola scriptura knew that. And we would do good to learn that afresh. Now, before we move on to practicing for the rest of our time together, I did good. Only one minute past what I wanted to do on that. The Bible, from this principle of sola scriptura, the reformers talked about the Bible having certain attributes, okay? And those attributes of Scripture can be remembered in an acronym of SCAN, S-C-A-N. S, the Scripture is sufficient. C, the Scripture is clear. Now, it's not equally clear everywhere, but it's clear on the most important things, which is God created, man messed it up, Jesus was sent to save, and now through the Holy Spirit, God is redeeming and restoring all creation and will ultimately restore it. That is clear. So the scripture is sufficient on its own. Scripture is clear on its own. The scripture is A, authoritative on its own, and N, the scripture is necessary. We can only know God through the scriptures. S-C-A-N. And sola scriptura picks up on two of those attributes. Scripture is sufficient and scripture is authoritative. So if that is how we rightly profess the doctrine of sola scriptura, how do we practice it? This is when you say, interesting, so what? So practicing scripture alone. What is scripture? What is the Bible? Is it a rule book? Is it a bunch of stories? Is it even just one story? Fundamentally, the Bible is God's personal disclosure in words to us so that we can know him. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is God's personal words written to us so we can know him. That's where the word revelation comes from. What is being revealed and who is revealing it? Well, in the scriptures, the triune God is being revealed and he's revealing himself. In the scriptures, that's what they are. And so God, interestingly, publishes himself in a book. And it wasn't our idea to put him in a book. He actually was the first one to self-publish. The Ten Commandments, he had his finger and he wrote on stones of tablet. He self-published. Right? It was his idea. It wasn't our idea. And it's actually a great gift because what happens if God doesn't write? Well, then you have a bunch of people saying they're speaking on behalf of God and you don't know who to listen to, right? So then you don't just have one Pope, you have a bunch of Popes declaring authority. But because God chose to reveal himself and put it in a book and protect that book, because of that, we have his self-disclosure to us. And so we practice sola scriptura by living under the sufficiency of scripture and under the authority of scripture. So let's talk about sufficiency, right? The sufficiency of scripture. Listen, we can say a lot of right things about the Bible. We can, we can even read it regularly. We can say this is the authoritative word of God, God self-disclosing, God revealing himself. But if we're honest, when life gets difficult or maybe just a bit boring, Aren't we so quick to look for new words and new revelation? Man, if God would just speak to me, if God would just tell me, then I would know. If God would just do this, then it would become clear. 
You see, we're grasping for these things. We want them, but oftentimes we keep the Bible closed. And then in our grasping, we go out and find any other authority. Right? We wouldn't say, well, it's capital A authority, but we functionally treat it that way. Listen, I, I love the social sciences. I talk about social sciences all the time. I, my dissertation research is just filled with footnotes from the social sciences. Okay? But I know this principle of Calvin's that I can't see anything rightly unless I have the word of God, those spectacles on me. That is my only authority. That is your only authority. And so yet we're so quick to go to just grasp. I was having a conversation with Ben, ben Kant about this this week, um, about positive psychology, right? The whole strengths finder movement comes from positive psychology. The whole flourishing idea in psychology comes from positive psychology. Those are good things. But what happens when we keep the Bible closed and we go to those things as though that's where our answer is, that's where our happiness is, then we miss the sufficiency of scripture because everything we ultimately need, everything that matters most in terms of our purpose and our life and God's will for us is found in the word of God. Every single thing. That's what sufficiency of scripture means. Now, of course, it doesn't tell you how to change your oil or it didn't tell us how to get a man on the moon, but it told us to what aim we should try to get a man on the moon, to the glory of God and why, to discover his wonderful creation. And so we need, again, other authorities in our fields, but ultimately the word of God is sufficient to answer these questions. Now, when we talk about this, what oftentimes happens here is people will lean in and say, there they go, Presbyterians, all about study. It's all about words. It's all about books. That's partly why I'm Presbyterian. It's true. I love those things. But then what they say is, here we go again. We're putting God in a box. Where's the Holy Spirit? You haven't talked at all about the Holy Spirit yet. And doesn't the Holy Spirit change people? Well, yes, absolutely. But this, this critique isn't new. People trying to pit Jesus against the Bible or the Holy Spirit against the Bible. It isn't new. It goes all the way back to Martin Luther. So remember I said, Luther had people coming at him from both sides. The Pope on this side and the radical reformers on this side. So back then, they didn't have blogs. But because of Gutenberg and the printing press, they had pamphlet wars. It's very pretty inexpensive for people to produce pamphlets, and it would happen like this. And so there were pamphlet wars. And there was a guy named Thomas Munzer who uh, came at Luther, and Luther was talking about sola scriptura. Well, he didn't use that phrase, but he's talking about the importance of the Bible and scripture and all of this stuff. And so Thomas Munzer said, if it was up to Martin Luther, he would send the Holy Spirit to college. You get that? Right? He's putting God in a box. God can say whatever he wants. The Holy Spirit is here. We don't need a book anymore. He'd send the Holy Spirit to go learn. He thinks he's smarter than the Holy Spirit. Now, Luther responded by saying, paraphrase, I don't care if Thomas Munzer swallowed the Holy Ghost feathers and all. I don't believe a word that he says. Now, of course, in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is represented by a dove. So Luther doesn't care if he took the whole thing in and swallowed the feathers. Didn't matter to him. Unless what Thomas Boonser said could be shown by the scriptures, he didn't believe it. Because you see what happened was, and this is the good news of sufficiency of scripture, Thomas Boonser had a following. He said the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And he gathered a following. And then someone over here in that movement gathered a following. And then someone over here. So then you went from one pope to bunches of popes. 
people who said they spoke on behalf of God, they didn't need the word. They didn't need God's scriptures. You ever heard of that? I've heard of it. I hear about it all the time. And this is what happens, is that there is a tendency to separate the spirit of God and the word of God. Whether it's us and evangelicals, we are really bad at this, right? We love the books. We love the movies that say, oh, God actually still speaks. And we have dreams. And those things, I believe those things happen, okay? But not ordinarily. So to try to make them ordinary robs God of his mercy and grace towards us of revealing himself in a book. And what actually happens is that we try to separate the spirit of God and the word of God, but the Bible won't let us do that. The Bible is clear that when we read the word of God, you hear the voice of God because the word of God and the spirit of God are together. Our passage today, verse 16 and 17, the word of God is, is God breathed. Theonoustos is the words, two words, God and breathe or spirit. I've been waiting all week to say this. It's a $5 word. You ready for this? Scholars call this a hopox legomenon. You can write that down. I don't know how to spell it, but you can try. Meaning that it's only used once in the entire Bible. And in fact, Paul made this word up. We never see it in Greek before then. We don't see it till after him until outside the scriptures. You see, the idea of God being one with a spoken word is new. That's the Bible's teaching. So noustos comes from the Greek word uh, pneuma or spirit. So you have like a pneumatic hammer or something that uses air to push things in. It's the idea of spirit or breath and so or air. So God speaks and becomes one because the breath of God is God. How would the breath of God not be God? The spirit of God, therefore, is God. That's what we say. We believe in Trinity. And so Jesus himself, you can't pit Jesus against this. John six thirty three. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And Thomas Munzer says, exactly. You can't send the Holy Spirit to college. Forget the Bible. Or maybe teachers today. But then you keep reading what Jesus says. So I'll start again. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The very words of God are the spirit of God. You can't separate the spirit from his word. And of course, God breathed. What's happening in 2 Timothy is that there are false teachers and Timothy is getting the snot beat out of him. He's a young man sent there by Paul to try to clean up this church and try to establish elders and pastors in that church. And he has all these false teachers coming at him. And what, when Paul writes encouragement, he didn't say, hey, Pentecost has happened, brother. You're gonna have lots of dreams. God's gonna tell you exactly what to say to them. That's not what he said. He said, remember the scriptures that you were raised with. Dwell on them, think on them. The Holy Spirit's gonna come along and remember your mother and your grandmama who taught you those scriptures. Remember that, go back to that, dwell on that. Because in those words and in my words, Timothy, are everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. That's what he said. And we're not putting the spirit in a box. First Peter says this, for when he received, by the way, he's talking about Jesus right now. When he was transfigured into glory on a mountaintop, he actually, Peter heard the word of God and he saw Jesus glorified in that moment. That's what he's recounting. And Peter says this, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
we ourselves, the three, heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, which is more sure. To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, we now in the prophetic word have something more sure than the voice I heard on the mountain and the glory I saw. That's amazing. I, I don't understand that, to be completely honest with you. But I, but I know that God gave us, his people, a sufficient lamp, a sufficient lamp to guide our paths, to, to cast light. And we know that when we see light, we're oriented and we see things differently and we don't grope anymore. And although we don't understand sometimes what we see or what we experience, our God gives us a sufficient lamp. So we don't have to worry about, well, I think that person hears from God more than I do. I wish I heard from God like that. We have God's word where he has given us a lamp to our feet. He's given us a guide. We cannot separate God from his word. And then lastly, this accusation that, well, you guys just worship the Bible. Psalm 56 says this. The psalmist says, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. That word for praise is used about praising God. And here the psalmist is praising his word, his law. Read Psalm 119, read Psalm 19. There's a lot of interesting, powerful language about this very thing the psalmist clearly says. I praise God's word. Why? Because you cannot separate God's spirit and God's word. You can't. And so we're not worshiping a book. This is about the sufficiency of God's direction to us. What am I going to do when my six-year-old asks me, Daddy, how can I love Jesus more than my toys? I want to do that. Where am I going to take her? What about when a teenage daughter comes home crying because she doesn't like her body? Or when we hear of a terror attack in London and our kids overhear it on the radio and they ask, Daddy, are there bad people in the world? Are they here? Are there bad people in Florida? What about when we, our nephew comes home from college and says that he no longer believes Jesus is the only way to know God? Where will you go? But just as important as that, how will you go? So I'm going to assume we're mostly Christians here. Oh, we're going to go to the Bible. Okay, how will you go to the Bible? Will you go as though the Bible is just a rule book to follow and I got to find the right arguments and view this as though this is a subject and I'm in an argument to debate these people? Or do we understand that this is God's revelation of himself to us? So I don't go as a, treating the Bible as a subject to be studied, but as a person to be known that knows me. That is the sufficiency of Scripture. And none of this downplays God's marvelous and mysterious power in the ministry of his Holy Spirit. None of it. What it actually does is it makes it more mysterious. Rather, what it does is it says God has chosen ordinarily to work in the ordinary through an extraordinary book. We can't pit Jesus or the Holy Spirit 
against the Bible. If God has spoken through a book, this means that it will certainly then say some things that we don't like, say some things that are confusing, but ultimately we have to ask with ourselves, just as Luther did, is the word of God a sufficient authority? Has God shown me all that I need to know? Not about every single thing, but about the most important things. And because the Bible says some things that we won't like, what we're going to end is that practicing Scripture alone isn't just leaning into the sufficiency of Scripture, but also the authority of Scripture. And so an authoritative Bible oftentimes is viewed as an enemy to personal relationship. Ask yourself right now, do you kind of think that? Well, if God is the authority, doesn't that inhibit my relationship with him? And I would say that authoritative Bible is not the enemy, but it's the precondition for a relationship with God. Now, if it's true that the Bible is God's personal revelation to us so we can know him, that means the means to knowing him is doing what he says and believing who he says himself to be, right? We don't get the opportunity to say who God is. So imagine this. We all know what it's like to be talking about someone when they're not there, right? You're it, can be, it doesn't even have to be sinister. It can be about your kids, right? You're, you're concerned about something. You're, you're dialoguing with your spouse or a friend. It can be all the best of intentions. But what happens when that person walks in the room? Does that change your speech? Well, absolutely it does. You start, certainly talk, start talking differently about them. Or, or in another way, we all know how awkward it is when we're out to dinner with someone and someone is speaking on behalf of someone who's sitting right next to them. And they keep doing it. And the more they do it, the more awkward it is. You're kind of like, well, actually shut, shut your mouth. And I want to hear from this person. Like this person's here. Are you aware at all of your surroundings? We know that it changes. We don't just get to speak on behalf of someone because that cuts off relationship. If I'm doing that, if, if I'm on, uh, at, at somewhere with you all and my wife Leah's right next to me and someone asks her a question and I just keep talking and speaking for her and all these things and she's right next to me, someone kicked me under the table. We don't do that type of thing, but yet we do it all the time with God. We try to recreate God in our own image and as an object because if God has spoken to us, we can't say, he can't say to us, uh, I'm a God of mercy. And then we say, yeah, thanks. And to, to someone else, God is a God of wrath only when it fits or suits us. Or he, we can't when God has told us that there are certain restrictions on the way we understand certain things. Like you can't just murder someone. But yet we say, well, if we're in this circumstance, then of course God would understand that this is okay. We can't do that because he's already spoken to us. We don't just get to make things up about him. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this quote. He says, I either know about the God I seek from my own experience and insights, from the meanings which I assign to history and nature, so that is from within myself, or I know about him based on his revelation of his own word. Either I, either I determine the place in which I will find God, or I allow God to determine the place where he will be found. If it is I who say where God will be, I will always find there a God who is in some way corresponding to me, is agreeable to me, fits in with my nature. But if it is God who says where he will be, then that will truly be a place 
that at first is not agreeable to me at all. That does not fit so well with me. And that's exactly how relationship works. I'm not in a true relationship if the person I'm with can never contradict me. If the person I'm with can never disagree with me. If the person I'm with can never confront me. Uh, So a pastor, Tim Keller, uses this example all the time. The the movie uh, Stepford Wives, right? If you've never seen it, the, the idea of the movie is that there's a group of men who want their wives to only do what they say, uh, only listen to them, not, never contradict them. And so they come up with some way to turn them into machines that only do what they have programmed them to do. But it becomes very clear that all of a sudden it stopped being a relationship because they had dehumanized the person. You can't treat people as subjects to be studied, but as persons to be known. And God is a person who has revealed himself to us. We don't get to tell him who he is or where to find him or what he should think. So you see, some of us love the word authority because we say, well, I just like to follow the rules. I just like to check the boxes. This is good. I'm black and white. Tell me what to do and I'll do the right things. But the problem is, is if that's the way we lean into the scriptures, we won't find God because it'll be about checking off boxes instead of knowing a person. But then on the other side, some of us hate authority and we just can't stand. Life is gray. You know, there's too much nuance. And so we, we, we buck against authority. But there, we also don't find relationship because guess who's become the authority? You. And you only let God speak when you think he should speak. And you only let God contradict you when you're willing to be contradicted. And guess what? That means you have become God. Both ways lead you to God as a subject, as an object, and not as a person. But God has revealed himself. And central to this revelation that God has given us of himself, he tells us that he is love. He is love that pursues even when we try to reject him. He is Love that won't let us thrash in the dark, grasping, trying to figure out what the purpose of life is, trying to figure out how to live to please him. But he gives us light. He tells us that he will light our path. He will bring light to us. You see, the written word of God points us to the living word of God. That's what it's there for. It points us to the living word of God, which is Jesus And so Jesus, who was the light of the world to push away darkness so that we could see who God is, that light had to be snuffed out on the cross. That light that came to to shine out into darkness for a moment was overcome by darkness. It was snuffed out so that you and I now could be brought into the light without being blinded that we could be brought into this fellowship so that we could know who God is. And so sometimes we may not come to the scriptures in the morning and there was a time when I thought, oh, bad Christian, bad Christian. How am I a pastor if I'm not even, you know, having a quiet time in the word of God every day? But you know what? Over time, what happens and what's happened to me is that I realize, no, it's not even about that. I need to hear from God today. I'm going to hear from lots of other people, Twitter, Facebook, newsfeed, meetings with everyone else. I'm going to hear what lots of people think about lots of things. 
But God has given me his word that I can come and hear from him today. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than anything you can imagine. It'll cut right through you because you cannot separate God's spirit from his word. And the good news to us is that Jesus, who is snuffed out, now has made us the light of the world. We get to participate in his life. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now admitting that our life is just awash in messages constantly. Lots of words, both spoken and written, and sometimes we equate them functionally with your word. We just think your word is just another book and we can't take in any more, and what we really need is just to go be outside and uh, be away from people, and that might be true, but only true fulfillment and happiness is going to come communing with you and the only way we know who you are and are changed by you is by dwelling upon Jesus and the only way we know who Jesus is is who you've told us that he is and you've given us your word to see that so I pray that we would not be a stuffy people who are all about books for the sake of being about books that but we would be a people of life and light who see Jesus and who treat his word as a lamp unto our feet, as life and bread and light and hope. Lord, send us out in these moments. Help us reflect now on the power of your word and point us to Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.